This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Discover collections, artworks, and stories on artuk.org and follow us on Twitter to keep up with new stories and the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. The internet has made sharing new ideas and inventions as easy as clicking a button. People sometimes say this connectivity has made the world feel smaller, and one only needs to think back 20 years to remember how even a simple international phone call was an expensive rarity for most people. Now apply this idea further back to the 19th century and imagine how challenging it would have been to disseminate new technological and cultural achievements across the world. World's Fairs provided a platform for nations to showcase their strengths. The first World's Fair took place in London, but it was inspired by French national exhibitions. The World's Fair, I would argue, began in this national market for fancy goods in Paris which had to dodge certain revolutionary moments and it was postponed and it was restaged, but eventually it opened. And of course the British snuck across the English Channel to take a gander at this newfangled event. That's Caroline A. Jones, author of the book, The Global Work of Art, World's Fairs, Biennials, and the Aesthetics of the Experience. It was Henry Cole in Britain who said to Prince Albert, why don't we have this as an international event? And that already anticipated what was going on in France as the people organizing this annual affair. It wasn't actually annual, but in any case, this periodic affair, as the people who organized it in France were already thinking to themselves, we should be inviting the people of the world and the nations of the world to represent themselves in this trade fair as a kind of competition. But the British got the head on that initiative and produced the Great Exhibition, as it was called, which, you know, has a much longer title, The Works of Art and Industry of the World's Nations or something like that. Okay, and that was 1851. (laughs) And that really got things going. The Great Exhibition was a huge affair lasting from May 1st to October 15th, 1851. It focused on Britain's strengths as an industrial leader, with inventions like the telegraph and voting machine making their debut. One of the grandest achievements of the event was the purpose-built location known as the Crystal Palace. There are wonderful architectural historians who've written a great deal about the architecture of the Great Exhibition. Most prominent in the first moment of 1851 was the so-called Crystal Palace, which was actually a modular structure manufactured on site, piece by piece, by people who were trained by Paxton, who was the Queen's gardener. The maker of the Queen's greenhouses figured out a way to scale up this technology to make an enormous multi-story structure that encompassed entire trees, right, that were not uprooted. So this crystal palace kind of perched on the ground over this particular fairground that was designated in the public spaces of London. And it was quite an architectural marvel. In a painting by James Dingman Wingfield, we get a sense of the incredible scale of this structure. The painting shows a large gathering of people in the two-story glass building. Throughout the scene, you'll find the large fountain, trees, and sculptures. Wingfield also includes portraits of Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, and other recognizable figures of the time. The original structure was in Hyde Park, and was three times the size of St. Paul's Cathedral. A venue this grand certainly sent an international message of Britain's industrial prowess. 
but there were domestic political motives as well. There's some evidence in the archives that Prince Albert really imagined this World's Fair as a way of averting worker unrest. In other words, if the workers of Britain could be made to be proud of their productions, presenting them to the world, they could perhaps alleviate their feelings of labor unrest that were roiling the continent across the English Channel. So there's some sense in which this was the World's Fair was a, a true democratic tool for collecting and collectivizing the workers of the nations represented. Fairs might last around six months, and it was a booming business. Some of the profits from the Great Exhibition were used to later found the Victorian Albert Museum, the Science Museum, and the Natural History Museum in London. The goal was to recoup the initial investment by selling tickets and subscriptions. People would buy books of tickets for, say, a whole week, right? And they would, of course, increase the London tourist economy accordingly by coming to stay you know, in the city and then going every day to this fair. So things like tourism were arranged around this event. In other words, railway packages, ticket packages from around England were pioneered by the Thomas Cook Agency. And the idea of a tourist and the idea of tourism was invented around these events. We're going to discuss some of the art that could be found in and around the fairs, but I wanted to take a minute to note the diverse range of amazing things that made their debut at a World's Fair. That list includes cotton candy, the Ferris wheel, the telephone, x-ray demonstrations, broadcast television, and so much more. One really gets a sense that these fairs were such a wonderland to experience. One of my favorite documents that was introduced to me by my colleague Arindam Dutta here at MIT is a little article that appeared in the Temple Bar in 1862 in response to the second great exhibition called How a Blind Man Saw the Exhibition. And it's, I'm sure, fictional. I don't believe the, the country gentleman who claims to be the author of this anonymous essay was actually blind. But he uses the artifact of blindness to talk about the overwhelming spectacle of the fair in terms of tactile encounters. So he talks about the papery Japanese uh, raincoat. He talks about the heavy German manufactured goods, which feel as if you could hurl them against the wall and they'd never be broken. He talks about the delicate French crafts that, you know, feel so light, you know, you're worried about them breaking. So he, he has this tactile encounter, which is sorted by nation. So we quickly understand that most of what is there to be seen and there to be encountered is a physical object rather than a virtual world that might be presented in a painting, right? A physical object that is intended to be sold, right? And is kind of assessed in terms of national style, national aesthetics, national standards, national uh, quality control, right? These things are read nationally. So that was one set of things that were on display. Another set of things that were on display are beautifully articulated by an American, Henry Adams, who was on the Grand Tour and who went to the Great Exhibition in, in London, or probably outside London by that point in 1900. And Adams writes about this in terms of a new confrontation between the old world religion of the Virgin Mary and the new religion of the dynamo. 
So Adams writes about these giant machine halls in which electricity itself was being generated by steam, by coal burning engines. And he writes about the dynamo and its silent power as the new icon of the 20th century. This makes the fair sound very industrial, which may be fair to say for the first great exhibition in London. But different nations prioritize different aspects of their culture and economy. Since I'm an art historian, I was most interested in the fate of what we think of as art in these displays. Britain was not very attentive to the production of art because it wasn't part of its national self-image as an art-producing nation. In contrast, France, the periodic World's Fairs that were staged in France, were centrally organized around the idea of what the French call the Beaux-Arts, or the fine arts, as as opposed to the applied arts that would make ceramics or rugs or furniture. So in France, the art world itself became a theater of competition, and France always made sure that it came out on top. So an an exhibition in France might prioritize displaying art, whereas one in Britain might focus on industry, for example. Exactly. And one of my favorite icons of these events was generated in 1867 in the French Exposition Universelle, where the engineer Frédéric Leplay made a map of how the fair was organized And he starts at the outer edges with raw materials, which you could expect to find from the colonies, right? And then he goes to an inner circle of industrially manufactured objects. And then in the innermost circle are works of art. So you get a kind of map of the world based on the relationship to raw materials, moving from useful goods to the final aesthetic goods that the French prioritized in their own national image. So what kinds of art are we seeing at the fairs? Because if, if the fairs, and this is just in my mind, is about innovation, are these kind of expressions of new movements or emerging ideas in art that we see at fairs? That's a wonderful way of thinking about it. And that's a way of thinking about it that is completely colored by the contemporary art world of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah. other words, um, you and I are the products of this centuries-long you know, process, which moves from the World's Fairs to the founding of the first biennial by Venice in 1895 to the contemporary world, which proliferates in biennials, right? So today's art world definitely wants to be presenting the next big thing, right? So you might go to uh, the Venice Biennale uh, today, which is on view until November, and you would see Ralph Rugoff's um, curation of that, and you would imagine you would be getting Ralph's absolutely contemporary report on what's happening right now, and he would hope to be even predictive of what was going to be on view in uh, the world's art, art galleries and art museums distributed around uh, from now until, say, a decade hence, right? He would hope to be that kind of future-oriented person. If we look a century ago or even two centuries ago at the World's Fair structure that emerges in the middle of the 19th century, they were never ahead of the game. They were very cautious, conservative events. They were run by national academies. In other words, if you were representing Holland, you were chosen by the Netherlandish Academy, right? So by definition, you were not avant-garde. So one of the Mm -hmm. case studies that I follow 
is a very young man named Yosef Israels, who's in the Jewish diaspora and his family settles in Holland in the Low Countries. And he is a product of the Enlightenment, right? He goes to the art academy, he learns to be a professional academic artist, and his magnum opus, his, his, his great history painting, is chosen by the National Academy to represent Holland, among other artists, in the 1855 French Exposition Universelle. And remember, this is the first exposition to have a dedicated Beaux-Arts display because the French are organizing it as a response to the British Great Exhibition of 1851. So our young man goes to Paris to see his painting in the Academy's Beaux-Arts Pavilion, representing Holland along with his other compatriots, and he's really depressed because it doesn't look very good because it looks really old, it looks really tired and worn out. And he realizes he's been taught a formula, which is by that point already 50 years old. So he's kind of depressed. He goes across the street and there's a brash independent pavilion that's been set up by a renegade artist, someone who definitely considers himself in the avant-garde. And that is Gustave Courbet, who sets up a pavilion he calls the Pavillon du Realisme, the realist pavilion, complete with a manifesto. It installs all of these magnificent works that Courbet had been working on for you know three or four years, including the burial at Ornan, including uh, the, the allegory um, of the studio. And our young man, Joseph Israels, is clearly just blown away. He goes back to Holland. He kind of has a crisis. He sits on the beach you know, trying to recover from his spiritual crisis. <laughs> and he comes out an international realist. In other words, he says, I'm going to go with Courbet. I'm going to give up this academic history painting and I'm going to paint the suffering fishermen of the Netherlandish coast. Courbet set a tone that would be followed by subsequent artists, not only in terms of his painting style, but also his DIY approach to exhibiting during World's Fairs. French realist Edward Manet would take a similar approach a decade later. Manet thought, yes, even though I'm desperate to have the Academy accept my paintings into the Salon, I too want to be considered an avant-garde artist. So in that 1867 exposition, which had the whole map of the world with the artworks in the middle, Manet sets up an independent pavilion exactly next to Courbet's, right? Courbet does the same thing he did in 1855. Manet copies him and sets up his pavilion also outside the official representation at the fair. So artists used the coming together of this spectacle to stage their own mini counter spectacles. And that's a very interesting aspect of how the avant-garde constructs itself. It constructs itself in counterpoint to the official narrative. Inside the fairs, there were still important moments occurring in art history. Eugene Delacroix, William Holman Hunt, and John Everett Millay were amongst the artists who showed work at the 1855 exhibition in Paris. In the 1867 fair, Japan showed art for the first time, and artists including Vincent van Gogh, Paul Gauguin, Matisse, and many other post-impressionists were subsequently inspired by the designs of the ukiyo-e woodblock prints introduced to France. Auguste Rodin also had an interesting relationship with World's Fairs. A bronze version of his famous sculpture, The Kiss, was on display at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. But the subject was deemed so risque that visitors could only see it by request. That all changed in the 1900 fair in Paris, where he showed again and was subsequently inundated with commissions for portrait busts. 
Rodin wasn't the only artist to show controversial work at a fair. In the 1964 World's Fair in New York, Andy Warhol created a mural inspired by a Marcel Duchamp piece titled Wanted, $2,000 reward, wherein Duchamp put his own face on a wanted poster. Warhol is commissioned to do a suite of paintings for the World's Fair that's being staged in Flushing Meadow in 1964 outside Manhattan. So New York now wants to play um, in the World's Fair game. And the commissioner that has been hired to run this whole machinery is the urban planner, Robert Moses. And Robert Moses has a very mixed reputation these days because he's the one who would plow through a traditional community with a giant freeway in the name of progress, right? So his reputation is as, you know, someone behind a bulldozer, simply mowing down the local in favor of some imagery of speed and progress and the automobile. So Warhol is commissioned to decorate the outside of the New York State Pavilion at this World's Fair in 1964. And he does a suite of silk-screened paintings called 13 Most Wanted Men. And basically, the work is censored. And there's lots of debate on why it's censored. The ostensible reason that Moses gave for censoring this suite of paintings was that these were um, photo silk screens taken directly from the most the FBI's most wanted lists that are posted in every post office in the U.S. And Moses argued that this was unfairly uh, publicizing men whose privacy in the American justice system should be assured. And even to the point of showing someone as most wanted who'd already been apprehended, who'd already been uh, put in prison, and who'd already done their time, and were now circulating in the world as ostensibly free men, no longer um, potential felons. So if that makes any sense, that was the legal argument that Robert Moses gave for censoring these works and for saying, now that I see them on the outside of the New York State Pavilion, they have to go. So they were up for you know 24 hours or something like that. They were taken down. And Warhol simply painted over them all with silver paint and remounted them on the outside of the pavilion, I believe. And so you had this kind of joke about, you know, the cancellation of these images and then showing the blanks as if those could be projective screens on which we could, we could project our own desires for what was most wanted. Now, an unexplored aspect of that Warhol story is that most wanted is a double entendre. Warhol was never at that point explicitly out as a gay man, but there's a kind of trope uh, in gay masculinity of, you know, the tough outlaw as an object of desire. So these men were also the most wanted as in homoerotic um, objects of male desire. And that's an unexplored, I mean, in other words, we have no paper trail that would say uh, that Robert Moses also suffered from a kind of heterosexual panic around these works, uh, but that could be that could also be an interpretation of their censorship. It's interesting to see how the styles of art exhibited at these events changed over the centuries. We have created in art history a romance about the avant-garde. So we have created a romance about being opposed to the nationalist story that the Academy is constrained to tell. But that is very peculiarly a Western European and, and I would say now, you know, Anglo-American also uh, narrative, right? I mean, that's how I was taught when I was coming up, but it's a really partial story. 
So when you go to the Venice Biennale today and you look in the Egyptian pavilion, I mean, you are not seeing someone who imagines themselves necessarily to be avant-garde. That may not even be a concept in Egypt, right? There may be other things going on altogether. So once we get into the biennial circuitry, which does aim to actually represent a certain global mentality, i.e. they want to have continents represented, they, they struggle for a century to try and represent, you know, Asia, you know, China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. I mean, these, these pavilions come rather late and there still is no permanent Chinese pavilion. So the Venice Biennale changes the game because we no longer have a manifestly centered curatorial structure that begins from the French Academy and fans outward to what are constructed as the peripheries of Europe, right? We, we begin to change the story. If you'd like to see images related to today's discussion, head over to artuk.org for the written version of this episode. The story also links out to Caroline's book on this subject, The Global Work of Art. Also, if you have a moment, please leave a review for Art Matters on our Apple Podcast page. Tell us what you like and what you want to see more of. As always, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.